Hi everyone, Anthony Fantano here, internet's busiest music nerd. Hope you're doing well. And it is time for another edition of the Needle Drop Podcast, a weekly roundup of our best content from the Needle Drop and the Fantano channel. We have a buffet pick of reviews for you guys this week. I'm going to be diving into the latest full-length records and EPs from Irish singer-songwriter Hosier, also abstract rapper Milo with his latest LP, Budding Ornithologists Are Weary of Tired Analogies. The new Jameson album, Velvet, is a must-listen for those who love their R&B and synth funk smooth, sensual, and sexy, and I will also be taking on the brand new Brockhampton album, Iridescence, the biggest and best boy band of 2018 is back with a brand new album. I'm also going to be talking about the new posthumous album from Prince, that 1983 live recording that has been making the rounds on a lot of different music sites, and I will be reviewing the latest quote-unquote collaborative track between Young Thug and Elton John. Hi, and that is going to be this episode of The Needle Drop. Strap in, get ready, listen in, and let's go. And it's time for a review of the new Hosier EP, Nina Cried Power. This is the newest EP from Irish singer-songwriter Andrew Hosier Byrne, who started turning heads after dropping a surprise mega-hit back in 2014 with the track Take Me to Church, a pretty good track that kicked off a debut album that didn't really do all that much for me at the time, as the album pretty much presented a mix of arena folk, some groovy blues rock, and pop soul, as well as a lot of hootin' and hollerin' gospel music made incredibly melodramatic with a reverby sheen placed on the group vocals, the keys, the guitars. Honestly, I just didn't really think that much of the full-length album. The instrumental presentation was similarly grand in scope and aesthetic to like some of Sam Smith's more organic tracks. The vocals kind of fell short for me in terms of emotion and range and personality, and the songwriting style just came off as kind of plain underneath the grand layers of vocals, especially with more saccharine moments on the album like Someone New. Now, from what I understand, this guy has a new album on the way soon. This EP is kind of setting the tone for that in a way. Nina Cried Power, this thing I think is pretty much floating the title track as a future hit song much in the way the Take Me to Church EP did in 2013. And as much as I like this track, I'm just not sure if it will end up making as big a splash as Church. I could end up putting my foot in my mouth over this, but I am going to predict no merely on the basis that this song is not nearly as plain and formulaic as Take Me to Church. The lyrics aren't as clear and cliched. The instrumental does have some points that get pretty dense and uh, a little overwhelming. However, I do hope Nina Cried Power does well as a song, does well as a single, because I, I think it's an infinitely better track, personally. There are some super punchy drums, great groove, good, clear, crisp recording, and uh, some great lead vocals, too, right at the start of this thing. The forlorn, heavy, and ringing piano chords are a nice touch on this track, too. Then as the song progresses, we kind of get the usual suspects with Hosier. We get those ghostly, gospel-sized backgrounds vocals that start to take shape. As the hook busts in, we get nods to Nina Simone, Billie Holiday, and Mavis Staples, who actually turns up vocally on this track when she goes to back Andrew up on the 
hook to this thing. It's actually a chilling moment on the song, gorgeous and passionate. A very immense moment on an urgent track that once you read into the lyrics of it, you will pick up most likely a lot of themes of power and injustice and division. Uh, the touches of organs on the track are really nice as well. There's a groovy bridge on this thing too. It is a very tight and meticulously assembled cut and uh, brings a very packed and wonderful three minutes and 45 seconds. Andrew takes a much more low-key approach on the following track, NFWMB. The song features a subtle, hypnotic, and ominous instrumental. The atmosphere is colored with droney organ notes, wintry vocal harmonies, some sparkly acoustic guitars. In a lot of ways, the track reminds me of the very cerebral and psychedelic indie folk of the 2000s, but just with uh, greater production value, grander presentation. I also love the subtle heaviness of the song that pops in once the chorus gets going. Feels like a great show of power, but also restraint because as, as grand and as thick as the instrumentation feels, it could go a lot louder and a lot harder. I also love the vocal refrain on this track, that whole nothing's fucking with my baby refrain I thought was really funny, uh, really sharp, and, uh, and certainly brought the low-key aggression and darkness of this track home. The song Moments Silence felt like yet another overwrought piece of blues rock which could have landed on the last album. It's like listening to ZZ Top if they were writing music for bearded Brooklynites as opposed to biker chicks and barflies. Though I will say the song is not quite as drab as some of this project's previous material has been. And the closing track sounds like a mix of a few different things. Most notably, uh, it's, it's kind of like a boneless Father John Misty. And lyrically speaking, the way Andrew writes about love on this track, it's not exactly exciting, thrilling, or inspiring. It's better than Ed Sheeran, but uh, that's that's not much of a bar to pass. And those are pretty much the four tracks of this EP. I, I loved about half of it. Uh, the rest of it I could take or very much leave. And uh, I, I don't know, with this forthcoming record, I guess maybe I'm anticipating it a little bit, although I just fear that uh, the whole thing is going to be as spotty as what I've just heard here, as spotty as the debut album. Don't get me wrong, there are elements of Hosier's music that I think is really cool. You know, the vocals can be nice, the instrumentation can have a real live rootsy and real feel to it, but sometimes the substance of the songs it's a little uninteresting. The style, the aesthetic, it's kind of, uh, I guess, dime a dozen or not all that unique or original. And not to say that originality is everything. I mean, this guy's music certainly stands out in the current mainstream music landscape, that's for sure, no doubting that. Uh, not a lot of people at the level of popularity that this guy is at with the types of songs that he's writing. But still, having said that, uh, th there are quite a few indie folk artists and indie songwriters who I think have very much done what this EP is doing, but in a lot of ways better uh, for the past 15 years or so. So I, I guess I'm kind of wondering what exactly is so thrilling uh, about some of the music uh, that I'm hearing on this EP uh, outside of it somehow reaching uh, a level of popularity and an audience that has most likely not run across a lot of this stuff before. Still, though, that being said, I don't think this was an awful listen. I'm feeling a, a light to decent six on this thing, transition into the next review. Uh, and it's time for a review of the new Milo album, Budding Ornithologists Are Weary of Tired Analogies. This 
is the latest album from Maine native Milo, a.k.a. Black Orpheus, a.k.a. Scallops Hotel, a.k.a. One Half of Nostrum Grocers, the founder of Ruby Yacht, the man's own label. Milo has had a lengthy and impressive growth in the hip-hop underground for the good part of a decade now. He is not a mainstream hit maker, nor is he somebody who has built his name off of a gimmicky image placed into viral music videos. Milo's path has been one of producing really brainy, abstract hip-hop with sample-heavy instrumentals, unorthodox song structures, and deep lyrical references in both literature and philosophy. Over the years, his material has grown even more cerebral, especially on his last album, Who Told You to Think, maybe one of his darkest and lyrically naughty albums yet. By comparison, Budding Ornithologists is similarly indirect in its delivery, in its focus, in a series of tracks that feel less like very groomed thoughts and more like lyrical sketches. As a result, I think this album is a slightly breezier record than its predecessor and a lot of Milo's previous efforts, even if some of the ideas Milo is putting out there are as profound as ever. Across Budding Ornithologists, he does drop some pretty sharp statements on good art and art is a weapon, myths, reality, balance in one's life, societal constructs as well, especially on tracks like The Esteemed Saboteur and Aubergine Cloak, mid-answer trying to remember what the question is. My main issue with these tracks, and many others on this album though, is that a lot of these thoughts, a lot of these ideas just seem to be couched in these very pleasant tracks, loaded with a lot of lyrical navel-gazing and stoned musings over some pretty redundant beats. And that in and of itself does not make this album a bad listen. The sound overall is pretty laid back, I still think that Milo's humor goes a pretty long way, and nothing really lasts long enough on this album to overstay its welcome. As I'm listening to it, this album pretty much feels like a lot of very woozy, colorful, hypnotic ear candy orbiting around my head, as Milo pretty much Spoon feeds me a bunch of lyrical food for thought. And the effect of Milo's delivery method on this is kind of twofold. Part of me feels like, well, I suppose it does give you some space to consider everything Milo is telling you on the album, but simultaneously the whole thing kind of sounds like wallpaper. Much more than a lot of his previous material, and even that wasn't exactly aggressive or in your face. Because of that, the album pretty much feels like you could either just leave it hanging in the background, just kind of creating a vibe, or you could passively gaze over it like a coffee table book, trying to glean a bit of pop psychology out of it, or some witty remark about society as a whole. Honestly, I feel like this album's heart is in the right place. I think it has good ideological intentions. But the end result of Milo's efforts on this LP feel pretty light, and are just mildly engaging despite the perceived depth that he gives off. Especially on tracks like Galahad and Goose Town, where where Milo simultaneously clowns his fans who look up to him and say he's an inspiration to them, and pointing out the irony in that by saying, well, I'm somebody who has said, oh well, to life's entirety, as if he's just kind of above it all, which just kind of feels like him buying a bit too much into his own solipsism. Don't get me wrong, there are some clever and mystical and jazzy and thoughtful and profound moments on this album that 
do stand out, like the opening track Myth Building Exercise Number 9, which has a haunting instrumental, rich pianos, which bounce off of one another with these swelling tone loops, a kind of off-kilter beat. Milo's language on the track is super flowery. I love his nods to reality and galaxies, then he goes on at one point to say that he's fitted like a shaman in Diablo, growing his lexicon of humorous references to nerd culture. The song Nominee features some very chill and confident rapping over a wonderful soul sample. Sort of feels like being locked into an endless stare, eye-to-eye stare with Milo himself. On the song Mid-Answer, a lot of the rhymes and references are kind of cheeky and self-effacing. While it may sound just as self-serious as a lot of the other material on here, once you're kind of used to Milo's style, you will hear the amount of levity he brings to this song as compared to a lot of the other cuts here. The closing track and the song Stet have some pretty bold and upfront flows and deliveries from Milo, very well produced, and bring the record to a relatively strong finish, as strong as the opening anyway. It's not a bad project, but honestly it didn't really leave that strong of an impression on me, no matter how many times I listened through it and tried to commit exactly what Milo was doing to memory. It's not particularly humorous, moody, or dark for Milo. It mostly just feels very self-serious and contemplative. And Milo knows what he's doing at this point in his career, so that is most likely his goal, as this album pretty much just feels like a meditation, a mental detox of sorts. Giving yourself a moment to be locked into a mental headspace and just kind of bounce around in your own brain with some gentle beats, some solid flows, and some linguistic crate digging. This thing is definitely likable. I recommend it to abstract hip-hop fans for sure. You are probably not going to want to miss out on this one, though uh, in that particular field, uh, this this is far from one of the bolder and uh, uh, more unique releases uh, that I've heard this year, or even just in Milo's catalog thus far. I'm feeling a decent two strong six on this one. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Jameson album, Velvet. JMSN, or Jameson, is the musical pen name of multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, and producer Christian Barishai. Jameson is not Christian's first attempt at releasing music commercially, though he has worked under this name for the good part of this decade now, and he has undergone a few evolution points under this name thus far too. I first heard Christian's music through his 2012 album Priscilla, which I found to be a kind of weak introduction, because it just felt like yet another face in the already saturated field of spacey, atmospheric, alternative R&B. Because in less than a year after the release of House of Balloons, Everybody wanted to sound like The Weeknd. However, with each new album, Christian was drifting away from that sound. As he began embracing more tangible instrumentation, groovier bass, very smooth synthesizers, more sensual vocals, and building a name for himself by doing features and collaborations with the likes of Keitronata, Absol, and The Game. Christian continued to land minor internet hits with tracks like Bout It and Alone and Drinkin', a song from his last full-length LP that even I was pretty impressed with. The rest of the record, though, ended up falling kind of flat for me as the instrumentation, the production, it felt 
pretty one-dimensional, a little colorless. Even though I was appreciating the drier and more upfront instrumentation on the album, the increased effort on the songwriting front, occasionally, though, Jameson's songs can run a little generic. And it's not like the vocals on Jameson records really stand out as stellar in a musical field where volume and pitch and vocal range reign supreme. Despite the vocal limitations of this album, though, Christian does pen some really catchy tracks with a lot of heart and an apparently deep appreciation for the genre of music that he's taking part in. Whether he's taking his sound back to some soul of the 60s and 70s or some R&B of the 80s and 90s. And there are moments in his back catalog where Christian has worked outside of those genres. There's a track off of his 2016 record, It Is, where he dabbles in a bit of reggae. And I think on this latest effort over here, he continues to diversify his sound. There are cuts on this thing where he heads into more of a synth-funk direction. There's even a spot in the second half of the track, Mind Playing Tricks, where the rough analog synthesizers sound like something out of a dark wave track. Then there's the incredibly dreamy synthscape of Real Thing, and the track's drama parts one and two, where you get these weird futuristic vocal manipulations where Christian's voice just sounds really robotic as he's crooning out these very somber and dreary vocal melodies against a very dramatic synth instrumental, but this is not how the entire album sounds. By comparison, the track Sunshine toward the back end of the album sounds like a lost piece of 60s soul music, with these really haunting effeminate lead vocals right at the start of the track that uh, are actually gorgeous, kind of blew me away. I'm wondering how exactly th they came to be on this record. I mean, it almost sounds like a tiny-voiced woman is singing the track. Truth be told, though, there are still a lot of moments on this album, despite the increased vocal dynamics, where I think the singing just falls a little short in terms of range, passion, excitement, sensuality, and moments where the lack of a strong song and deep instrumental support really do pull the rug out from under these tracks. I would say the closing song, Wet, is an example of this, also the track Explicit, even though I think the vocal melody he's shooting for on this track is a winner. As much as I like the song Levy, I'm not sure if I'm that into the uh, spacey and dramatic second half where Christian tries to embark on uh, a bit of an atmospheric odyssey using a lot of the same lyrical and melodic themes of the part one version of the track. Also, both installments of the song Drama. Again, a handful of spots on this thing where I think the execution could have been better or came off a bit messy, but simultaneously there is an endearing vibe about the way Christian goes about recording and performing his music, uh, much in the same way that you might catch on an Ariel Pink or a Dame Funk album, where you kind of have a person who is a bit of a musical mastermind, and through their music they're kind of living in their own little world. Because there's no denying that Christian has quite a bit of talent on this record, and, and that talent is mostly focused, I think, on the songwriting front, which does go a long way, along with his knack for writing baby-making music. A lot of Christian's ideas on this album sound like an amalgamation of some classic soul, maybe some R. Kelly, uh, Justin Timberlake if he wasn't total trash, Marvin Gaye, some solo George Michael. There are even some vocal parts of the track so badly where it sounds like if, if Jameson had just landed the yacht rock legend Michael McDonald feature, he, he would have killed it on that track. And there is a pretty consistent run of fantastic songs throughout this hour-long album. I love the slow, sexy, and dramatic Talk is Cheap. The very sexual and intimate pose is a little tongue-in-cheek, a little silly, 
kind of erotic, definitely feeling some some strong JT vibes on this cut. The song Inferno also slaps. It's kind of a, a throwback to the 80s with what sounds like Christian pitching his vocals up a bit for a different effect. The epic and multi-phased mind-playing tricks also hits pretty hard. Even if there are some moments on this track where I wish the vocals took it a little bit further, I do love that instrumental transition into the analog synth passages in the midpoint. So the tunes on this album are most certainly there, but another creative thing about this record, in my opinion, are the instrumentals. Even though I don't think Christian is really reinventing the wheel when it comes to a lot of these different styles of soul and R&B that he's playing with, he does assemble them with uh, a lot of attention to detail. He's certainly approaching this album with more instrumental color than he has a lot of his previous releases. The soaring guitars, the very warm bass, and the punchy drums all over this thing sound fantastic. The synthesizers give the record a lot of flavor, too. There are some moments on this thing where you might hit you with a stunning wall of sound like the layers of strings and synths at the end of Got To Be Erotic. Overall, I think this thing is a pretty solid album, easily my favorite Jameson record so far. However, it, it didn't really blow me away. I think with the length of this album, there were some tracks that, that could have easily been cut and as I sort of alluded to earlier, there were some vocal spots that I wasn't too crazy about, and I think still at this point, as as well as Christian has kind of learned the craft of, of these styles of music, I think uh, he's, he's not sort of bringing the most refreshing approach that I've ever heard. But if you want to listen to some soul and R&B with kind of a classic flavor, a heaping helping of camp, quality songwriting and production, and a deep appreciation for the aesthetics of these sounds, then give this album a shot. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Brockhampton album, Iridescence. This is the long-awaited major label debut album from the best boy band since One Direction, Brockhampton, who rocketed to relevance last year in the midst of dropping three fire projects, the Saturation series, Saturation 1, 2, and 3, some of my favorite albums of 2017, blending together elements of hardcore hip-hop and pop rap R&B, albums that featured creative production, sticky and memorable hooks and verses, and incredible chemistry flowing between the group's distinct members. Iconic music videos and sold-out live performances continued to build the group's profile throughout the year. They eventually inked a multi-album deal with RCA Records, but shortly afterwards got caught up in a media frenzy due to an ex-member, Amir Van, being accused of sexual and emotional abuse by a former girlfriend. The group eventually came to the decision to remove Van from the group. They released this statement along with that announcement. And I think a lot of passionate fans pulling Brockhampton in both directions on this issue really failed to appreciate how difficult of a decision it most likely was for them to do what they did. You could A, lose someone who a lot of people saw as a pivotal member of the group, someone who was plastered all over the front of your three most popular records, or you could leave Brockhampton looking callous toward this rising concern toward abusive behavior in the entertainment industry. Given the band's stated stance on this issue and the way it's been worked into their art, along with the social climate and the implied deception in the public statement they released, I think the move that they made was a correct one. But that still doesn't change that losing Amir and the conditions under which it happened is still a pretty big change for a group like Brockhampton to undergo. As it seemed like this unexpected shift sort of knocked the group off their balance as they struggled to keep up with 
live shows and release dates and uh, public appearances. For a moment, it felt like everything was on the upswing for the group as they spent 10 days tracking material for this record at Abbey Road Studios in London. Quite a bit of work on this album was also put in at the Brockhampton Factory in Hawaii, too. Iridescence, keep in mind, is also the start of another Brockhampton series, the Best Years of Our Lives trilogy, so this album is not just a standalone outing. It is, in fact, the start of a new chapter whose pages, I think, are pretty much about adjustment. It's a brand new day for the most beloved boy band out there today, but this album does come with some mixed results. I mean, there's some great and refreshing ideas on there that I think Brockhampton fans up until now will certainly take to. The cleaner, brighter, and more colorful recording on this record certainly does sound like Brockhampton have much more at their disposal technically than they did before. The production is punchier too, the drums are harder and heavier, the bass is thicker. Quite a few tracks on this thing feature luscious strings. And the pitched and chipmunked vocals that we've heard on previous Brockhampton efforts also carry over onto this new record over here. The point I'm trying to make here might be difficult to get, but I just think the pitch adjusted vocals on this new record, they don't sound as goofy, the emotion doesn't seem to be sucked out of the rapping. I could still kind of tell who's delivering the vocals. It's not nearly as distracting. I don't know if this has to do with the amount they pitch adjust or the process or the program they're using. I just prefer the way it's being applied here. We also hear much moodier performances and verses from the boys on this record too. Uh, some of their most heart-wrenching material yet. In a way, I feel like Iridescence is growing off the slightly more experimental and poppy tendencies of Saturation 3, but the results as an album aren't nearly as dynamic or consistent, and uh, they come with a few downsides. The first and biggest issue I may have with this album is that the group dynamic has been totally flipped on its head. Miraculously, the most standout members of the group on this record are easily Joba and Merlin, who bring some of the most intense and memorable memorable performances and verses across the entire record. Bareface gets a bit more mic time, though it mostly seems to just be in delivering these kind of sassy hooks and refrains, not really the summary and stunning balladry that he has ended previous efforts from Brockhampton with. Dom is as solid as ever, so that's good. Kevin seems a bit more incognito than usual, and Matt Champion, shockingly, uh, has very few in the way of standout verses on this record for some reason. There are a good handful of tracks on this album that are severely lacking in the group's usually exciting chemistry, and right from the start of Iridescence with the track New Orleans, which kind of feels like each member respectively riffing on this hard-hitting and droney beat, with lots of strange sound effects and samples kind of orbiting the instrumental, which pretty much just distract from the lack of a strong hook or uh, a unifying anything. I mean, certainly there are some standout verses from Dom and Joba and especially Merlin toward the end of the track, rapping about his relationship with his uh, heritage and his roots, but also the religion of the new land that he's found himself in. But as an entire song, and especially a starter to this highly anticipated album, it's pretty underwhelming. The structure of the song Berlin is also odd as well, with another instrumental featuring tons of orbiting strange sound effects and odd samples, uh, most notably a car engine, like, revving up. It grabs my attention for a second, it sounds kind of neat, but 
it's not nearly as substantive musically as so many fantastic instrumentals from the Brockhampton camp in the past. Even with the dreary, cute little synth chords that pop in after the first leg of the song. I like Dom's bold opening, I like Joba's pretty strong finish on the track, but the whole progression of the song seems pretty nonsensical and awkward. Where the cash at was kind of an exciting moment for me in the first leg of the album, featuring mostly Merlin for the duration of the cut. From the insane instrumental to Merlin's voice to the hook, there are a lot of things I like about this track, but it sort of seems like a lost opportunity, especially when this seems like such a hype and exciting track, more members could be getting on it. Uh, Matt Champion's little mini-verse on it doesn't really contribute all that much. I enjoyed this track. I enjoyed the summary R&B transition out of New Orleans with the track Thug Life, where Dom actually delivers an incredibly impassioned and emotional verse with a little bit of vocal manipulation on it. It sounds odd, but I do think it is a beautiful moment on the album. But outside of these two tracks, I, I think this album has a pretty slow start. I don't think Brockhampton and the record as a whole starts pulling out all the stops until we get to the track Wait, which kicks off with a stunning verse from Kevin. Probably his, his most stunning verse on the entire record. It would have been great to get at least a few verses from him on this album that are this good, but at least we got one, and it is this heart-wrenching look back on his youth where he is going over not only coming to terms with his own sexuality, but also missing the days when Brockhampton were, <laughs> I guess, a bit smaller and more manageable in terms of the amount of attention that the group was getting. The luscious strings backing his voice are gorgeous, and I love the transition out of his verse into the speedy, bustling dance beats, over which Dom and Joba do their thing really well, and also back up these themes of pressure and stress, really living up to the song's title of Wait. The weight on you. The song District, though, sounds like yet another moment on the album where each member is just really conceptually disconnected over production that is just trying too hard to be glitchy and just pack in a lot of bells and whistles. Vocally, Matt Champion is really underselling it. Joba is really overdoing it. Generally, I think the second half of the album is much more solid than the first. The group sounds way more focused and cohesive as a collective in the second half. It's also also where some of the album's most depressing songs turn up. I'm not going to say all of these very fast changes have been bad for Brockhampton, but the label deal, the attention, the pressure, the Amir thing, there are clearly collective feelings over that, and the group just happens to sound more cohesive as they are venting on these feelings. Like on the song Tape, which features all of these stacked, self-effacing, revealing, vulnerable verses. Also the song Tanya, which previously was teased as a live performance on a late night show. I believe it's, it's the only single track outside of Joe Vera, which was released just prior to the album drop, that's pretty much the only single that made it onto the album. Truman, Wildfire, nope. None of it. But I do think this studio version of the track sounds excellent. The piano on this instrumental is great. I love the progression of the song. I love how each member of the group sort of contributes to the, the very moody vibe of this track with their own personal experience and story, especially Merlin at the end. And then there's my favorite ballad on the entire record, and that's San Marcos, which is this acoustic guitar-backed and powerful little auto-tune ballad. Also has an amazing finish, too, with dense strings and what sounds like... I don't know what, a children's chorus or something? I want more out of life than this. I mean, <laughs> it 
is nearly tear-inducing and I think brings a powerful sentiment reflecting on the group's artistic and personal ambitions, the recent changes they have been undergoing. And in the second half of the album, because Brockhampton is also known to be a celebratory group, they managed to drop a couple of effective bangers too. The track Vivid, the very funky Honey, and as I mentioned earlier, there is the incredibly powerful Jovert, the track which I thought uh, made for a really excellent single for this album. Joba really steals the show with one of the most intense verses on the entire record. It really is uh, awesome and special to kind of hear him and Merlin doing as well as they are on this album. Even if it is, it sort of seems like as a result of them going through uh, a lot of emotional trauma and, uh, and, and really kind of going above and beyond vocally. Uh, on this particular track, Joba just screaming his brains out over his own feelings of distrust, his frustrations over his own short-sightedness. Fabric, I also think, is a pretty solid closer and cliffhanger for the next album. It's another moment on the album where the group are venting on the situation that they currently find themselves in with nods to overexposure, even suicide, lack of privacy as well. Instrumentally, there are lots of swelling tones and very passionate, manipulated vocals as well that show a really huge Kanye influence. Now, overall, I don't think Iridescence is a huge misstep or even a disappointment, as I like and love most of what the album has to offer. But there are some points on the album that I just don't think are quite there, or not delivering material that is up to the bar that they have set for themselves in the past. Some songs featuring kind of gimmicky production and lacking in a strong hook or a song for the group to rally around. But despite those spots where I think the album was lacking, I still hear a lot of maturity and progression and creativity on this record. Songs like Wait seem totally born out of the genre fusions and the experimentation and the beat switches that I enjoyed so much on Saturation 3. Songs like Where the Cash At are totally insane off the wall and seemed like new wild territory for the group entirely. And the moodier tracks and the ballads on the back end of this record are some of the most emotionally powerful and potent material Brockhampton have released up until this point, and simultaneously are some of the most conceptually focused material the group has released so far, as they have now been given the opportunity to collectively write about experiences they're all going through as a group. So while I didn't love this whole thing, it, it does excite me and it does make me look forward to the future of what the group is going to be delivering as they kind of go through these changes. And those are pretty much my thoughts on the record. I'm feeling a light to decent seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. I wanted to come on here and say something really quick about this posthumous Prince album. This is the first record of newly released music from Prince that we have received since his passing years ago. And um, while I was a little unenthusiastic about the prospect of digging through the Prince archives and Commercial, commercially releasing music that he might not have been comfortable with selling, putting out there, etc. Uh, I'm actually pretty pleased, pretty happy with uh, this first offering over here. And hopefully any following posthumous releases to come uh, are as well-assembled, uh, sort of tastefully executed, 
and uh, helpful to Prince's memory as uh, the fantastic musician that he was. Now, this thing is just nine tracks, 34 minutes, and if you didn't hear already or if you couldn't tell from the title of this thing, it's, it's literally sort of like a live impromptu recording of Prince on the microphone, at the piano, sort of flowing through a series of different tracks, uh, some of which kind of segue into one another, some of which uh, have cold finishes and starts. And uh, it's it's really a, an incredible and intimate little listen. You know, I, I wouldn't get your expectations too high in terms of like, like for example, Purple Rain is on this album. However, uh, it's just like a little one minute and 20 second uh, interpretation. Uh, however, he does flow really quickly into a beautiful little rendition of uh, Joni Mitchell's A Case of You uh, immediately after, which was actually really nice. I wish it was something that uh, uh, he had expounded on uh, a little bit more in this recording. The Mary Don't You Weep recording is powerful. Uh, the swaying piano groove on that thing and Prince's voice are incredible. Uh, cold Coffee and Cocaine is uh, a, a Prince rarity <laughs> where he delivers over these really low down piano riffs, uh, some really raspy and strange vocals. It's almost as if he's trying to do his best, uh, Tom Waits impersonation or something. Again, it's actually pretty incredible. And, uh, um, maybe not one of my favorite songs of his, but definitely one of my favorite recorded performances I've ever heard from him because it's just so impeccably strange, but he, he was known to be kind of a a freaky guy. And, uh, and, and that certainly comes out in that song. And I think uh, in some of the other tracks here too, because one of the most beautiful things about this record is, is literally just how stripped back and how simple it is. And yet how passionate the performances are, how great the vocals are, how tight the piano playing is, the dude was just a monster, and I think this album is certainly a reminder of something that is uh, really lacking in a lot of modern music today. And uh, and and not to say that hey, there's just one way to skin a cat, one way to be a good musician, so on and so forth. But uh, this album is really a show of Prince's raw talent. I I would submit to you <laughs> that there are a lot of artists out there today that. You couldn't just throw in front of a piano and a, in front of a piano and a microphone and and expect thirty minutes of straight quality entertainment, you know, or really it just in front of whatever instrument of choice that that they uh, may want. Uh, because again, I, I think a lot of the appeal of today's music it comes down to a lot of production value. It comes down to a lot of PR. And it comes down to basically a, a lot of effort to prevent you from seeing that person in a very stripped back, a very personal state without all the bells and whistles sort of um, surrounding them and building up their image. Uh, this album is the exact opposite of that. That's part of the magic of it. The whole thing, it just sounds so casual. Uh, it sounds so casual. It sounds so effortless. It sounds like he's just doing this without a whole lot of forethought. However, it, it sounds fantastic. It sounds great. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe my conception of, of, of these performances is incorrect. 
but if it is, I think that only goes to show just how um, easy Prince sort of makes uh, these performances sound, or at least how easy it must have been for him uh, to do this stuff. Because again, man was just a, a great multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, singer, and uh, a musical monster. And um, I, I would not, if you are a pop fan of any stripe, I would not miss out on the opportunity to hear him in rare form on, on this little album over here. So those are my thoughts on this thing. Uh, definitely one of the most promising posthumous releases that I've heard uh, so far this decade. And it certainly makes me excited Again, given how tastefully assembled uh, this record is um, of, of what's to come, you know, if, if there are going to be more releases like this coming down the pipe, because that, that would certainly be that would certainly be nice. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. Now, if you guys have been following, one of the biggest stories in hip-hop is that Young Thug has had a new project on the way, although that is not a story in and of itself because he's pretty prolific. He's always got something coming out around the corner. But on this forthcoming project, this On The Run EP, uh, he had some notable features. It is out now, and Black is on here, Jaden Smith is on here, but the name that turned the most heads was that Elton John was going to be collaborating with Young Thug on a track. So it's going to be pretty interesting to see what one of the most unique voices in hip-hop today, combined with one of the biggest legends in pop music ever, uh, have to offer when they team up. I mean, Elton John has always been pretty ahead of the curve, and it seems like lately he's been doing his best to stay plugged into everything that's going on in this new zeitgeist and this newest wave of music and everything. So I don't know. Let's just see how it plays out. If the collaboration is deep, if it's uh, substantive or if Elton is merely just a random feature on uh, your average thugger track. I don't know. You know, let's give it a shot. Let's see. Let's um, see what thugger has to offer on this one. Hi. With Elton John. Babam. Okay. Young Thug. Elton John. Hi. Um, I'm I'm slightly disappointed, but not in the song itself. There was a lot of buzz around this track, and it seemed like it, as it was being promoted and we were seeing stories about Thugger and Elton John talking and meeting and uh, as as the anticipation for this track was really being built up, uh, I guess it was just being sold in a way as being a a little bit more than what it actually is. Um, There has been for over a year now uh, talk of a Thugger Elton John Rocketman remix. And um, while I did anticipate that this track may in fact be that, 
I thought that given all the extra press and the fact that they had connected would kind of lead to this being a little bit more than uh, what it actually is collaboratively speaking. Uh, that being said, though, I actually think uh, as is, I mean, if, if we're just talking about Thugger doing a remix here or, you know, his own original song with heavy uses of samples from Elton John's Rocket Man, where he's just kind of vocally soaring over the uh, echoing ghostly lead vocals of Elton John with some pretty rich piano chords hanging in the background. Uh, If that's what we're talking about, this track isn't bad. It's actually super enjoyable. It's one of Thugger's prettier songs. Uh, It's easily the best and prettiest track on the entire record, best in terms of structure, best in terms of clear direction lyrically and vocally, uh, best in terms of just a very, again, I'll say rich and harmonious and uh, and gorgeous little instrumental, uh, best in terms of creative sampling as well, because while, uh, sure, a lot of the song's appeal, I think, is based on these Rocket Man samples, I think the way that they're employed is... uh, uh, pretty sweet. It's not just, you know, a simple chunk of the song being pulled out. It's, you know, extra instrumentation being added in. There are, you know, effects laid onto Elton's voice to make it sound very eerie and and uh, atmospheric and uh, to sort of give a somewhat ambient and, and very vast vibe to the entire track. Um, can't say I'm all that crazy about a lot of the other material that has landed on this EP, but the song is certainly a standout, and I guess I could say it's totally been worth the wait, uh, again, considering how long the talks of, of this song being released have have been. Uh, again, given the talk before, uh, was hoping that the collaboration here would actually be a collaboration as opposed to just a sample on the song. But still, it's a pretty track. It's uh, gorgeous. I love Thugger's uh, vocal performance on this one. It's certainly a reminder of the fact that he can go subtle. He can go, uh, I I guess, sensual or pretty with his voice when he wants to, as opposed to just spitting out these really weird, almost avant-garde, squeaky kind of vocalizations that almost no other rapper in his field is, is... uh, doing or can do as as well and as distinctly as he does. Uh, just like in the way he performs over this instrumental, thought it was a pretty instrumental and uh, thought the way the samples were applied were pretty sweet. So not really any complaints about it other than that. I guess it's uh, it's it's a little short and and maybe it's not as epic or as grand as it could have been, but still a great still a great track for Thugger and. Uh, Uh, Hoping to hear more songs with this amount of melody, this amount of focus, uh, this amount of clarity from him in the future. Again, um, given that some of the other material on this EP from him is pretty standard for Thugger these days, I'm not exactly sure if that's going to happen or if, uh, again, given how old this song most likely is, uh, if this track is going to be indicative of any kind of sea change at all. But um, still, digging the direction the song is going in, digging the sound, digging a lot of things about it. And that is it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank you for listening. Make sure to hit up our YouTube channels, youtube.com slash the needle drop and youtube.com slash Fantano to catch up on more and every bit of our content as it drops. Also, the needle drop.com for even more and uh, track reviews and blurbs and that sort of thing. We are also on social media, twitter.com slash the needle drop and Instagram 
Afantano. Shout out to Jonah for assembling this episode, as he does every episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. You guys are the best. We will catch you in the next one. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review of this podcast, if you can as well, a rating. And uh, yeah, that's going to be it. Anthony Fantano, podcast forever. forever.